and welcome to episode 82 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone, from awardsdaily.com. And last year we started to go through the Oscar years, um, starting, uh, we started the 70s and we went all the way up to modern day, mostly. I think we missed the last few years. And then we decided just we'd go back to the beginning and talk about the beginning of Oscars, which we did already in episode um, 80, I believe it is. Um, it might be. I'll have, to, I'll have to find the number because we do kind of mix it up with talking about um, current Oscar race. But since there's nothing really to talk about right now, the Oscar race hasn't really started. We're, we're going back through the years and we're doing some Oscar history. And right now we've caught up to we're at the second year of the Academy Awards uh, ever, right? And mm-hmm. this was in 1929. The movies of 1929. The movies of 1929. Mm-hmm. Um, and they weren't, the Academy hadn't really gotten itself together. It hadn't, didn't really know what it was or what it was going to become. At this time, it was still sort of run by the people who founded it. Um, and one of those founders was uh, Mary Pickford. And she figures into this year's Academy race because she becomes the reason why they changed their voting to have the entire membership vote on the contenders after she won for Coquette. Um, and it, it came out that she had sort of, you know, done some early Oscar campaigning with, with the film by inviting the voting members up to her house for a lavish dinner. And and you have to remember that. So we're going to talk about Mary Pickford and we're going to talk about the early Oscars. And then we're going to talk about the next um, Oscar year, which was that November, they had another ceremony, and by the following year, 1931, they had it together. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they had these two two Oscar nights the same year. Which sometimes I wish we would do that now. Wouldn't that be fun if we had Oscar night in April mm-hmm. and then Oscar night again? Yeah, or not? One not, is bad not, enough. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say maybe one is enough. <laughs> we but, could have it in um, June. We could have it right now. Summertime Oscars. Right. You know? Yeah, because you know there's like a, a totally different type of movie in the early part of the year, right? Yeah. And it's strange that that back in the early years of the Oscars, they did not care at all about December releases or the holiday films coming out between Thanksgiving and Christmas. That didn't enter into it at all because their eligibility period was, as Craig has said, it was from. August of the year to July of the following year. That was, it was the, so the year of movies ended at the end of the summer. That was their eligibility period. And so that's why they began having the Oscars um, in November, but they just got off because not only was, I think Hollywood was in turmoil, first of all, because of sound pictures coming in in 1927 and 28. And then we also have to remember one of the reasons why they didn't have the Oscars in November of 1929, there was a pretty significant thing that happened in October 1929, the stock market crashed. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine Hollywood was trying to figure out how that was going to affect the industry. Plus, it might not have been the best optics to have a big glamorous evening at the Oscars a month after the stock market crashed and everybody had lost everything that they owned, you know? they might have That might have entered into it, too, I'm thinking, that they postponed the Oscars from from November of 1929 because there was just so much other turmoil going on. I think, actually, no, it was because they the first Oscars was, for whatever reason, they did it in May of 1929. And so to do mm-hmm. the second one in November, uh, they, they, they did the second one a year later, but that was when they realized that even though they were doing the cer- they were doing the ceremony in April of 1930, the the movie the cutoff date was July of, 
of 29. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right so about I, that. That's, I, I, that's, I'm kind of rambling, but I'm, I think that it's it was just timing because of whatever arbitrary reason they chose to do the first one in May of that year, probably because it took them a while to come up with the idea and then to get everything going and get everything organized. Well, you know, we talked about in the very first Oscars, they had the meeting to decide what the Oscar winners were going to be on February 15th of 1929. Right, but they didn't actually have the ceremony until May. They announced the winners in February, but they didn't have Oscar night to hand out the prizes until May. So that was strange for the very first year. Even the first year, they were all mixed up. Right. It's just funny to look at the early years. It's such a, a nascent thing, and I don't think anybody probably expected it that it would become the huge deal mm-hmm. that it that it pretty quickly became and remains mm-hmm. this day. I do think that for the next after they finally started having it in November, the Oscar night in November, they 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 did that until like 1932 or 33. Then they decided that that wasn't working out either that they really did want the end of the year movies to be considered and so they moved Oscar night up to March and April. And that was Oscar night then for the next two decades until 1955 or 1956. It was always March and April. Yeah, but it was just so. But it's just so strange to think that they gave that release dates were so unimportant to them back then, except for the fact that they decided that it didn't really make much sense to be celebrating movies that had come out a year a year ago. It was already old news. Right, you know, the world right. had moved on. And that's what you were saying, Craig. And and so Louis B. Mayer, he was the guy, right? He was the guy back then, along with, um, you know, he was one of the founding members. Am I right? Or mm-hmm. Yeah, he was the founding member. He was, was the his, founding member, yeah. He was his baby. So he's the one who was sort of dismissing talkies. He was thinking that um, they were making money with silence and everybody was going to stick to that and nobody wanted to make the jump. But then um, he saw that, that, what movie was it? Oh, my God. It was The Jazz Singer. Warner Brothers. Well, I don't think that's the one that they're talking about. And was it the jazz singer or in this? In- oh yeah, there was another one. He decided. I forget the name of the movie. It was a. It was a South East, South Pacific movie that, yeah. that MGM made, mm-hmm. right? And I can't think of the name of it. But he decided to do two versions: a silent version, and then he would add sound effects. No dialogue, right. but just sound effects. Right. And the sound effects movie made so much more. The version with sound made so much more movie than the silent version. He decided, well, okay, I guess sound is a thing. And he went right for it. He ab- he completely abandoned his faithful, you know, his loyalty to silence and jumped on the bandwagon. He was following the money like he always did. And they didn't. They they were scrambling for sound films, and they didn't really have them because they didn't make them. So they just started putting music to to films, and and like you say, sound effects. And then they would have. The next thing they did is they would have singers sing, and, and so they would advertise them as all singing, you know, motion picture, all singing, all mm-hmm. music, all live motion picture, so that when they watched it, that you know, it was just to them so incredible to see someone singing and hear them singing on film. Like that's how um, how <laughs> how long ago we're talking about. I mean, you know, what's funny about it to me is that in a way it sort of foreshadows what what's happening. What has happened throughout the Oscars and what is happening now, which is a major shift in how films are being made and a resistance to embrace that change at the Academy. And it took them a while to, mm-hmm. with their various categories, to make the shift first from silence to talkies and then from black and whites to color. 
And now yeah, because like for a while they were giving out two different awards for cinematography. There was a black and white cinematography and a black and a white a black and a color Oscar. And also, even for art direction and set design, there was a black and white set design Oscar and black and color set design Oscar. Because right. they just couldn't make up their mind. They just didn't know if it was going to be a fad that would last or not. Right. Right. So um, I don't really know if um, if the films that are nominated this first year that we're talking about are all talkies or if they're still silence. I, I would think that they, they are, are talkies, although Broadway Melody, I, the, the transition from talking from silent to talking wasn't immediate. It was similar to 3D where not every theater was equipped for 3D, so they would do it in both versions. And that was actually the case. I don't know about the other ones, but the case with Broadway Melody, they released it in, in a silent version and, and the talking slash musical version because not every theater was, was ready for sound. It took about a year and a half to two years for every theater to, to actually get up to speed. So they could have question. a musical with musical numbers uh, recorded, and it didn't have to be exactly in sync. But when you started to have dialogue spoken, the dialogue had to be in sync with the moving of the, with the mouth movements, right? So it was easier to sync a, a musical. It was easier to fake sound in a musical than it was a dialogue picture. There were critics okay. at the time, not just Louis B. Mayer, but there were distinguished film critics who were just poo-pooed the whole idea of sound. There was one very famous critic at New York who said, it was like a big deal with the National Board Review, who said, who, who would ever want to listen to Lionel Barrymore read Shakespeare from the wall? You know, it's like he didn't right. think there would be, anybody would ever want to hear that. Right. You know, from, and, and as you can see from Singing in the Rain, which is a really great movie about that time, um, they, it was really clumsy and awkward where they put the mics and, you know, how, and yeah, exactly like you're saying, like how they, how they came off sounding. Nobody knew for sure. And when Garbo finally talked, that was a big deal. Good thing that one went well. Because um, right. that could have been a disaster. Well, it's lucky. I mean, her voice was amazing, right? But there were a lot of people, and I believe even Mary Pickford will talk about, I mean, like I said, we'll be talking about her. She was worried about her transition to sound pictures because she was the biggest, she was the most famous woman in the world because of her silent movies, but her voice was not really great for sound pictures, and she was concerned about that, and rightly so, because she didn't really have a great voice like some, like, like Garbo did, for instance. Right. And so it's a good time to talk about Mary, Mary, Mary Pickford, who was really an early pioneer, not, I mean, not, at a time when, you know, there were no rules set that said only men could work in Hollywood, right? So she, um, she was really smart, really ambitious, and, you know, started out as an actress, but also became, you know, did writing and became a producer, and then was one of the founding members of United Artists with Douglas Fairbanks and... Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Yes. And so she married, uh, she, she got a divorce from her, her husband at the time and married Douglas Fairbanks, in the, and together they created Pickfair, which was sort of a, I guess in those days it was maybe a Brad and Angie kind of thing. You know, they were so big, the two of them as a mm -hmm. couple. They had had an affair for. They were both married when they when they first met and started having an affair. And he got a divorce, but she was resistant to the idea of getting divorced because she wasn't sure how her public would accept that because she was America's sweetheart, right? And she wasn't sure if they would turn on her, if her fans would turn on her for for breaking up her marriage because that just wasn't done back then. Divorce was not a thing, and especially adulterous things. But so, but when they finally announced that they were a couple. 
she wasn't even she wasn't even planning to marry Douglas Fairbanks, but the, the fans like totally supported them. You know, they were all for it because the people they were married to were nobodies. They didn't really know the people who were being jilted, who were being left behind. The public did, and then so they were just one. They just liked the idea of the royalty hooking up together. Hmm. <laughs> so Mary Pickford, apparently one of the founding members of the Academy, um, is 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 instrumental in changing the way that they that they did their voting. Um, it says I'll read from Inside Oscar, which was written by Damian Bona and Mason Wiley, the late. Mason Wiley and Damian Bono, both of them are dead, unfortunately. Uh, it says, Mary Pickford won an Academy Award, but she was worried about her chances. Her career in talkies was not going well. If Coquette, that's the movie she, she would be up for. And Coquette's box office showing was disappointing. Her subsequent teaming with husband Doug- Douglas Fairbanks in The Taming of the Shrew was an outright fiasco. Critics said the said the the only notable aspect of the production was the screenplay credit <laughs> written by William Shakespeare additional dialogue by Sam Taylor to overcome these setbacks Pick, Pickford launched the first campaign to win an academy award inviting all five members of the central board of judges uh to her mansion pick fair for dinner and then it said on the eve of the awards the Los Angeles Times observed despite the alleged sophistication of these film folks Pulses will race, uh, pulses will race as, as exponentially as they did back in the days when they sat on the stage of their high school auditorium, awaiting the principal's final speech and the subsequent thrilling trip to the center table. For I'm sorry, I can't read because I don't have my glasses. That's why I sound like such a dork. I'm so sorry. I can read. It sounds good. You shouldn't have said anything because I didn't realize. I, I kept like squinting. You read I'm without like, your glasses as well as I do with mine. No, I don't. Barely. I'm like blurring through it. I don't even know if I'm good. Okay, so it says, and the subsequent thrilling trip to the center table from which the gold sealed blue ribbon diplomas were handed out. So there you go. That's. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it was like it's like they were like children again. They were they, they were so nervous mm-hmm. even the, uh, where they, they were you know the the royalty of hollywood but they became children in high school again when it came down to the awards is what the gist of that is right yeah and then it says at the night of the oscars it says demille began announcing the winners and the crowd noticed that many of them were among the 36 charter members of the academy and then it says that that um finally when when mary pickford wins um it says but the but the discussion centered on how the academy could possibly have given best actress to mary pickford in a movie nobody liked her defenders said that it was a nice gesture to give her credit for changing her image but others pointed out um knowingly that since pickford was a charter member of the academy things weren't exactly on the up and up one columnist wrote that mary pickford's victory proved that the academy is handing out its cups on a political or social basis and on merit alone, the award should have gone to Ruth Chatterton or the late Jeannie Eagles. So there you go. Um, right. The- there were much better performances that year. Um, it is absolutely true. Not, you know, not only did she invite the founding members, and, and we should make clear, the founding members of the Academy, the 26 members of the Academy, were at that time the only people who got to vote for the winners. The different right. members in the, in the different categories could do the nominations, but it was these 26 people on the, on the top committee who, only, who were able to choose who the winners were going to be. So she invited all of those people to pick fair, as you say. Not only that, but Douglas Fairbanks, her husband, was president of the Academy. 
Douglas Fairbanks was president right. of the Academy at the time. So right. here's she's the most powerful woman in Hollywood. He is the president of the Academy. They invite all of the members to um, tea, you know, just before the voting, just before the ballots go out. And so naturally, she won. I mean, Joan Crawford made a Snyder mark. She said, well, of course she won. She's sleeping with the boss, you know. <laughs> you know, but... Um, um, right, right. Uh, the uh, let's see. I have a, a Scott Eiman. He's a he wrote a really flattering, really adoring biography of Mary Pickford. But even Scott Eiman, his um, biography of Mary Pickford says, considering the caliber of her, her performance, the Oscar would have been incomprehensible were it not for her social position within Hollywood. Mary's Oscar for her inferior work for Coquette surely qualifies as the first lifetime achievement award. <laughs> Because right. she had, for the past 20 years, she had been like, a, a, you know, Hollywood, um, America's sweetheart and, and world-renowned for her silent films. And she was instrumental in, in, in founding United Artists and all the other important things that she did in Hollywood, her charity work and everything. She was adored. But her career was just about over because when the sound pictures came in, she, she only made like four or five more movies after, sound, after the talkies came. So she was, her career was essentially over. So it was very much a, a Lifetime Achievement Award for her. Hmm. But anyway, that, the point is what we're leading up to. Go ahead, Sasha. Is, no, no, is Craig the, was going to say something yeah. there. What? Weren't you going to say something just now? I was just going to um, say I, I hate seeing Mary Pickford thrown under the bus just because Hollywood is a clubby, uh, you know, it, it, it was kind of a career achievement award, but I'm perfectly okay with that for everything that she's done up to that point. If you watch Coquette, it's not the greatest sound performance that year by a long shot, but... She gets a lot of credit, I think, for trying to do something different. She cut all of her hair off. She was trying to to break her image, and her voice is fine. I think more than her voice, the problem with her was that uh, she became popular playing little girls, and yeah. the public mm-hmm. refused to accept her as anything but a little girl. So she tried to play an actual woman, a complex character, and, and, and it was rejected. And I think it's easy to... to to make her the fall guy for the fact that the early academy and even actually today the academy is a little dicey as far as far as sure. I'm concerned. It, it's it's um Oh we don't I don't I, mean I to just do I, I just wanna I want to separate her from from the Academy, if we can, because I don't think it's mm-hmm. fair to... I don't mean to disparage to, her achievements or even her work. Her because, because of what she did, even if it was a career achievement award, it's completely deserved for everything that she did, you know, for her, what Sasha was saying about her founding, one of the co-founders of... Of, of United Artists, which was in its day sort of an independent studio. It, it wasn't one of the big players like MGM, but it invited in other talent and provided them the means to make movies. And I don't know, it, it, there's just a lot of... United Artists. A lot of his early writings is just like catty, gossipy, bitchy stuff, which doesn't, doesn't give her the, the just justice that she deserves, I think. Right. Well, there's no way, of course, to prove that just by as a cornerstone of Hollywood. Yeah. There's no way to to establish, you know, there's just because they invited people to dinner at Pickfair doesn't mean that anyone was obligated to vote for her. That was the implication. There were whispers at the time, but like you said, that was just gossip. And we don't mean, of course, to disparage Mary Pickford's achievement. We, I think, we all tried we to talk about how important she was for the past 20 years. We're just saying that. But it was pointed to as the reason that the voting then for the third Oscars, for the third Oscar ceremony, 
voting was opened up to the entire membership to so make it less cliquish. And that's a good yeah. thing. And to show that that they that they you know they didn't want to ever be accused of that again i mean even now like you say craig that that they're still accused of that every time someone like sandra bullock wins or something and and there's always this question of do they deserve it or are they just winning because they're popular and there's always starting back then which is hard to believe at the very beginning of hollywood this idea of Oscar bait, of someone creating a role specifically to win an Oscar. So that's Jeff Bridges in Crazy Heart. That mm-hmm. would be Matthew McConaughey um, in Dallas Buyers Club. You know, they're, they lose a bunch of weight. They gain a bunch of weight. They, you know, transform themselves. And um, she didn't really do that. But that idea of someone... Um, doing all this stuff to win an Oscar really started right then, whether it was fair or not, and it wasn't really fair. And they ended up giving her a, an honorary Oscar years later as a thank you for her contribution to cinema, which was significant. Um, the Oscars are the Oscars, you know? I mean, we're never going to be able to make the argument that this is an honest institution <laughs> and mm-hmm. that these awards from, from inception onward are honest. They're not. They're clicky. Right. They're about themselves. They're driven by money. They're just like po- the pol- politics in the United States politics, you know? So, but we can, we do have tangible results of Mary Pickford's own life and her career and her legacy, which isn't really tied up with the Oscars. I mean, we're talking about it now, but it's not something people remember her for. It's it's kind of a secret. You know, it like. was pretty well established. I mean, at least, it, a lot of people talked about the fact that as soon as the Oscars were initiated, she was determined that she was going to have one. She wanted that to be a, a capstone for her career. She probably realized that she was not going to be able to do the kind of movies that she was famous for, and she wanted to do a movie where she could um, crown her career. And she managed to do that, and she did She did a, 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 an honorable job doing that. And, Sasha, you've also mentioned it wasn't only that Mary Pickford won, but it was just the fact that when Cedric Gibbons won an Oscar and then Frank Lloyd won an Oscar, right. during, they, they were all founding members. <laughs> they were all these 26 people giving awards to just each other. Right. And so that... that it was more than just Mary Pickford. It's every, everyone who won an Oscar in the second ceremony was a founding member of the Academy Awards. And so that mm-hmm. was looking not too cool. Right. And that would haunt them for the next 80 years, really. I mean, that's never gone away. That, But at least now they have a more Democrat because of Mary Pickford and, and other things. I mean, Damien Bona says it's because of that. But it, it, like you say, it could have been other things mounting up. It didn't necessarily just be Mary Pickford. But nonetheless, they did change their awards to being more Democratic. Um, and this is why Awards Daily exists, because the, that kind of democracy opens up campaign awards campaigning. And Mary Pickford is one of the first to do it by inviting them, but that's by no means rare. Everybody does it, especially now. Mm-hmm. So um, there's no difference between what she's doing and what the Weinsteins do every year, which is have their special Hollywood parties and invite people to come and hang out with celebrities and, you know, feel special. And then they... they Usually, sometimes we'll vote for that, for that film. I, I can't find, I can't lay my hand on the exact quote right now. But even to initiate, even to kick off the second Oscar night, Cecil B. DeMille's brother stood up and gave a little speech, and he said, "I want the losers to know that it's very difficult to separate personality from achievement." So he was acknowledging with that statement that no matter what happens, don't even if you'd lose the Oscar, keep bear in mind that it has a lot to do with the prom queen aspect 
mm. of of your image, and so they weren't they weren't trying to disguise the fact that that's what they were about. They, he was an openly acknowledging that with that statement. I'll find that quote and so I can quote him and not paraphrase. So I, and we'll publish it on the site. All right. Well, I will say that the the there were only five. Um, if I'm looking at the right, yeah, there were only five nominees for Best Picture, which is really bizarre, but it was Broadway Melody, Alibi, The Hollywood Review of 1929, In Old Arizona, and The Patriot. Mm-hmm. And actually, there weren't technically nominees at all. They just chose winners, but mm-hmm. then Ampes and whoever else looked back at the records later to look at which films were were under consideration oh. and that's how they compiled the what we consider nominees but they weren't really nominees in the sense that we have nominees today where people look at a ballot with five names and they pick one it wasn't like mm-hmm. that they there was a discussion they chose the winners and later on they they kind of cobbled together what the nominees would have been oh, if that so. makes any sense mm-hmm. yeah even if you look on the imd page it says that it's for every nominee that's officially listed it says in small print no official nominees had been announced this year for 1930 they weren't even really doing the official nominee nominations thing it was just the committee the select elite committee was deciding which movies were going to be under consideration and that was basically a secret nobody even knew what those movies were until as you say craig later they retroactively looked back to see which ones were in contention um is the movie in old Arizona the one that was embroiled in that weird mystery a couple of years back? Was it? I, I thought it was where um, an actress had won supporting or something, and then people thought that she was really a man dressed up as a woman, and mm. and her. Os- I believe that was later. I think that was later, okay. a later year. I, I can't remember the details of that. That was a big deal. They made a big deal about on that online when that story came out. Yeah, I remember I, that coming out, but I don't think it was in old Arizona. I could be wrong, I think, though. I think that was in the 1950s. Maybe that. Uh, no, no, it was earlier no, than really? that. But was I, it? Okay. Oh yeah, but I think that the in old. I think that the actress that we're talking about. I think it's Louise Rayner, maybe, and she's oh. in. No, I just have it all wrong. It is Louise Rayner, but is she in an old Arizona? She's I don't not. Think she yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you so think the Louise Rayner to... was the was the person who they suspected of being? Somebody else, or even yeah. there's some gender. rumor that she was a really a man or something. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. That was the one. And so I'm looking here at her. I think it was Louise Rayner. Um, no, it couldn't have been because whoever. Well, she was. No, there was some Oscar story. We're going to have to find it for maybe the next yeah, podcast. I'm thinking it maybe wasn't Louise Rayner because she was so well known. And this was like somebody who appeared on stage to accept her Oscar. That's right. And people weren't even really that familiar with her. They didn't really quite recognize her. It was someone yeah. who was t- put on stage to um, accept the Oscar that they thought was maybe really her dressed as a man or something like that. But at any rate, that Oscar disappeared that night and was never seen again. It just mm-hmm. disappeared. The person who had it disappeared. That's a great story. We'll have to dig that up. Yeah. That'd be just a great feature on the site to, to post that. I'm sure know, now that, that we're talking about it, someone will, some listener mm-hmm. will say, I, this is what you're talking about and you got it all wrong. <laughs> this is the Can real I just story. really quickly, since we, this is something we didn't bring up when we talked about the first Oscar ceremony, and I meant to, but we were scattered and we went off on so many tangents, I didn't get around to it. But this thing about gender fluidity that is so much in the news lately it was a big part of what was going on in the early years of the Oscars, too, in the early years of Hollywood that wasn't really talked about much because it was a, they, it was able, they were able to keep it under wraps so much better. But we didn't even mention, so we, we're, we're going to talk about over the years about the way that women have achieved 
more and more power and clout and the way that black filmmakers have done the same. And I think, I mean, being a, a gay guy, you know, I like to talk about how the gay influence on, on, on Hollywood and on the movies and on the Oscars. And we didn't even mention the, when we talked about the first Oscars that uh, F.W. Murnau was a gay guy, and he was mm-hmm. openly gay in Hollywood at the time. He was, there was no secret about it. He was just openly gay, and, and nobody really minded about that. And also, less well-known, but but very well-known within Hollywood circles, is that the woman who won the very first Oscar for Best Actress, um, who was that? <laughs> what was her name? Um, <laughs> oh, let's see. Oh, um, scramble, scramble. Yeah, let me, um, fuck. I didn't know this would be on the test. This way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Neither. Oh, the dog back. ate my homework. Oh, God, my eyes. I, I oh, don't... it's Janet Gaynor. We talked a lot about <laughs> Janet Gaynor, how she, how she really stepped into the role of America's new sweetheart as Mary Pickford was stepping out of that role because she really aged out of it. Janet Gaynor was the new America's sweetheart, and she was considered really pure and, 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 um, um, had a lot of integrity and a lot of, lot of, uh, you know, the, a moral role model for the for the country, and she she managed to maintain that image. But at the same time, she had a lesbian relationship for years and years with mm. Mary Martin. You know, Mary Martin was Peter Pan on TV. Mary Martin and Janet Gaynor had a lesbian relationship for like 20 years. Wow. They were both married to gay men. Janet Gaynor's husband was the gay costume designer, Adrian. So they had what they call lavender marriages. Both Janet Gaynor and Mary Martin were involved mm. in lavender marriages, and they had homes next door to each other. And apparently, you know, they carried on their love affair wow. right in the open. Everyone in Hollywood knew about this. and But nobody in the rest of the country had any clue. That's incredible. And I wonder if that... I'm reading in the next Oscars that were held in November, that's when the Hayes Code really started to get involved. And I'm wondering if the Hayes Code and censorship had to do with kind of the homophobia and repression mm-hmm. that would follow. Um, I think so, because those, the rumors, even though they were probably kept within the Hollywood community at the time, things had started to leak out. Even in the 1920s, they, Hollywood was having a hard time keeping a lid on all of this stuff. And once this kind of thing got out in you know, in the news, they, Hollywood was afraid of their reputation. And so they agreed to signing on to the Hayes Code so they could sort of self-censor themselves before the federal government stepped in. That was the big fear, that the federal government would start censoring movies, because already in the early 1930s, there were eight different states who had censorship boards. And when a movie would show in that state, the censors, who were just clerks, just just, uh, civil servants, could take a movie and, and cut anything out of it that they didn't like. And then that movie would have to, the film would have to be go to another state and it would be all chopped up. And so by the time that these film reels made the rounds around the country, they were just butchered, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't have that happening. So they agreed to have the Hayes Code initiated so that they would have script approval even before the movie was shot. And the Hayes Code would be able to tell the producers, this is not going to fly. We can't have this happen. We can't have this. We have to change this. Before they, before they would even film it. So they were able to circumvent censorship. And so the next Oscars, the ones that were held in um, in November, this this is the paragraph from Inside Oscar about that. It says, The mood was festive for those who did attend the crowded affair. After Louis B. Mayer got off the dance floor, dinner was served. Then the program began with, with Will Hayes, the head of the industry's self-censorship board, giving a lecture on the connection between morality and business. 
Good taste is good business, and to offend good taste is to fortify sales resistance, Hayes expounded. Nothing unclean can maintain growth and vitality. When a tree begins to collect blights, it begins to wither. So does reputation, so does business. Francis Marion, a nominee for the Writing Award, wrote later, Hayes rose and for 50 minutes extolled the virtues of the picture business since his censor board had eliminated its vices. <laughs> 50 minutes. Can you imagine before the Oscars, this guy gets up and starts talking about um, morality and Hollywood and censorship, and mm -hmm. you know that the, it was at this point that you know Hollywood had to start living that weird double life of double standard of like this is the America that we want to represent not the America that that we have you know that that, that mm -hmm. we all know or certainly the Hollywood that we all know you know this wild life that was happening in Hollywood for a lot of these people they had to clean it up and zip it up you know I will say though that 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 writer's reaction was probably the reaction that most people in Hollywood had at the time. They knew that Hayes was a blowhard and he was a conservative moralist, and they didn't like being preached to. So even though the Hayes Code was the Hayes Code was officially initiated in 1930, nobody really took it seriously for the next four or five years. That's why we have what we call the the pre-code years were not really technically pre-code because from 1930 to 1935, the code existed, but everybody just ignored it. People tried to see how much they could get away with in spite of the code. They didn't really crack down on enforcing the code until like 1935. That's why for me personally, the movies that were made between 1930 and 1935 are amazing with what they were able to get away with showing. Right. You know, the, the, and I love the pre-code movies. Yeah, I know. So, I do yeah, too. you're right, though. Hayes did make a big speech in 1930, but nobody took him seriously at the time until they finally got really strict with him because the Catholic Church got in on it, too, by 1935. The Catholic Church were telling their parishioners, don't go see this movie because you're going to go to hell if you do. Uh, all right, so the next, this, this one that we're still talking about, I mean, we, we're kind of bouncing back and forth between the years. We're not doing it linear, in a linear fashion the way I thought we would, but I think it's better to just bounce around subject to subject. Mm -hmm. But now we're talking about the next, the November 1930 Oscars, where they had All Quiet on the Western Front as the winner, and then I'm seeing um, four other nominees. Is that right? So they did have nominees for that? Um, yes, I think they did start having official nominees in 1930, and they and those nominees were chosen by different committees in the different branches. The same that that was that the same way we do it now. The different branches would choose the nominees. Yeah, and they had seven nominees for best actor. George Arliss. Look at all won. of the repeats, the, the double nominees. Yeah, George Arliss has dominated twice. Ronald Coleman has nominated twice. Maurice Chevalier twice. twice. Greta Garbo twice. I um, think that's, didn't they institute, I didn't read it in this book, but didn't they insti then institute that rule that you can't be nominated in the same category? Oh, no, that, they that must would, have, because this, this, didn't very, this didn't happen very often. Clarence Brown was nominated twice for Best Director. There were so many double nominees that year. They must have also thought that it's counterproductive, that when you're competing against, against yourself, you really diminish your chances of winning at all. Right? That's so funny that they did so, like, helter-skelter all over the place. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Best Actress was only seven, and Norma Shearer won, and uh, that was Greta Garbo had two nominees, one for Anna Christie. It seems like she should have won that for Anna Christie. I don't know anything from anything, but it just seems to me like Greta Garbo should have won for Anna Christie. Yeah, well, Anna Christie's a fab, an incredible movie, no doubt about it, but I think that The, the Divorcee is a really not only excellent movie, but it's a really important film, too. You know, Norma Shearer was married to um, Thalberg, 
she right. was she she was she was Stahlberg's wife, and she was a really independent thinking woman, and she didn't want to fit into the mold of, of the of the pure-hearted uh, wife of integrity. She wanted to branch out and be and play more, more vivacious and adventurous roles. And the divorcee was a movie that that really showed a woman's independence. What happened, the plot basically of the movie is that she finds out that her husband is cheating on her. And so what she does the very next night is she sleeps with his best friend. And then for the rest of the movie, she sleeps with like half a dozen guys. <laughs> That's right. Because her husband tries to tell her, oh, don't worry, honey, it doesn't mean anything. Mm. So she's going to say, okay, if it doesn't mean anything for you, then it doesn't mean anything for me either. I can play that game too. So is that so why was, the Hayes Code guy did that because of that movie? <clears throat> that was part of it because he had just initiated the Hayes Code and then they turn right around and make this movie where this woman is, a, is, is going out and having... A lot of one night stands, literally having one night stands. <laughs> and, and I mean, people love the movie and they love seeing Norma Shearer in this movie because she was incredible in it. It's a little bit stagey and a little bit stiff because it was the early first year of sound, you know, it's bound to be. Yeah. But as far as script wise and attitude wise, it's really forward thinking. Well, uh, speaking of funny and clumsy, the they had to the, the two the actor and the actress knew they were winning and they cuz because they were asked to pose with the statues 2 right. days before yeah. the Oscars. was <laughs> 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 like, "Come on Sandra Bullock, will you pose with your Oscars so that we can take this picture before the ceremony like <laughs> so we can have the photos ready to distribute on Oscar night." Yeah. It's so strange that the way that they didn't take the so much of it that we take for granted now it wasn't taken seriously at all back then. So, who's seen All Quiet on the Western Front? I raised my hand. I, I love that movie. It's Craig and Ryan have both seen it? Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so you guys, will you talk a little bit about it? Is it a good movie? I know I see it's from Universal, so we're still... It is an amazing movie. You look at that movie, and just from the look of it, even if, with, even if, you, don't, the, even if you don't listen to a single word that's being spoken, just the look of it, it looks like a movie that was made in 1955 or 60. It is so advanced technologically Whereas most sound movies at the time were really stagey because they had to be because they kept the microphone, you know, in a flower vase or whatever, and had, so people had to cluster around the table. This movie, All Quiet on the Western Front, has such depth of feel, doesn't it, Craig? Mm-hmm. There's something happening three feet from the camera, there's then 30 feet from the camera, 30 yards from the camera, and then you see things in the distance, like three miles in the distance that are happening. It has such depth, this movie, it's incredible the way that visually what it looks like. And thematically it was really advanced because it was an anti-war movie it was is about german soldiers being initiated and talked into fighting world war one and how they were going to find all this glory and they find out that it is anything but glory as the movie progresses they find out what pure hell war is and it offended a lot of people at the time in america because it seemed to it seemed to make Germans the heroes, and we had just defeated them, right? And so the American Legion and people really raised an uproar about the fact that we're being too easy on the Germans. But the interesting thing about it is we have all these Americans playing Germans, and they made no pretense at all of a German accent. They spoke like purely American, with American slang and American vernacular, American accents. And so it's easy to... Imagine that these are the, the same thing was happening to American soldiers, that they were also talked into fighting the war for glory and that they, and they ended up damaged for the rest of their lives, you know. 
It's oh. ironic, too, because in Germany it was seen as being anti-German. And when Hitler came along in the early 30s, um, this movie was what was among among the many banned films because it he perceived it as portraying Germans in a negative light, where really it's not taking sides. It's simply portraying war in a negative light. And it's one mm-hmm. of the first, I don't know if it's the first, but it's so strongly, it's not even just anti-war. It's like blatantly pacifist, which is something you wouldn't even really see today. But I think the world was still so traumatized and haunted by World War One that you could actually get away with doing something like this. Yeah, just imagine it was only just like 10 years after World War One ended when this was made. So it was very much like the same span of time as Apocalypse Now in Vietnam, you know, it, that was that fresh in everyone's mind at the time, right? And, and it, but but far enough away where intellectually they can sort of grapple with it. Mm-hmm. Did you hear the helicopter, yeah, Craig? What's that? Uh-huh. Did you hear the helicopter going by? Does it remind you of L.A.? <laughs> yes, I did. Hear <laughs> Urban <that>. mosquito. <laughs> um, interestingly, um, as is typical with the Academy, other than maybe the diverse diverse for reasons you say, Ryan, and all quiet mm-hmm. on the Western Front. These movies aren't as remembered as the ones that didn't get nominated. You know, um, Inside Oscar always has that list. And, and the year before wasn't as, as dramatic as this year, where you had City Lights, believe it or not, mm. Little Caesar, The Public Enemy. I think that's with James Cagney, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Holiday. Holiday. Uh, the Blue Angel. Dracula. And Taboo. I thought Dracula was like 1931, was it not? No, it just says okay. here. Maybe it came out later. But City Lights... Mm. And Holiday not getting nominated is pretty significant. And The Blue Angel. So, mm-hmm. Interesting. And, you know, another thing about The Blue Angel is that they, they made the German version first, and they then they, there was a remake. They remade it with Marlene Dietrich, came to America, and did the movie all over again with an, an American version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're, they're not even alike, very much alike, the two versions. Actually, didn't they film them... Did they film them simultaneously? I didn't. I, Wait, I may you know wrong. what? You I'm sorry, right. you guys. So. It, you're right. It was the next year. <laughs> Forgive <Yeah>. me. <laughs> so sorry, okay, that's a spoiler for next year. <laughs> I mean, next right. podcast. But the, so last year, this one we're talking about is really not a big deal. It's just the coconuts, hell's angels, hallelujah, and applause. And the year before, that was, was the first Marx Brothers movie. Yeah. And the year That's before, another thing about the script of that movie that, that was so racy. You know, to think of what they got away with at the time with that screenplay right on the on the the day after they initiate the Hayes Code, we have Mar- Groucho Marx saying, "Yeah, oh, we took some photographs of the native girls, but they weren't developed, so we went back a week later." <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh. they, they say stuff like that, and it's like, what? What? Oh, we went back a week later. Um, anyway, the, so yeah, I guess after the Hayes Code, those movies I just mentioned, um, the Blue Angel and City Lights and all that, you can see why, maybe why they didn't they didn't get nominated. I don't know, but um, anyway, that's for next time. I'm sorry, that was my mistake. Um, I'm gonna leave it in. I'm not gonna cut it out. Mm, because that's I okay. Still yeah, because that's but... an, that's a that's a good point. Is it, it's always been thus that they're always the movies that we look back on as classics. A lot of them are overlooked entirely by the Academy. You yeah. know, I mean, it's just always been that way. And Craig, this might be a good time for you and I to talk about maybe Pandora's Box. That was a movie that, for me, is like the pinnacle of the silent era. It's one of my favorite movies of the 1930s, maybe one of my favorite movies of all time. And it was completely not even acknowledged that it existed by the Academy. What year was it? It was came out in... It came out in... 1929. 
December oh. 1929. So it would have been eligible for the 1930 Oscars for sure. But the, the version that came to America was so heavily censored because it is so sexual. It is so openly indulgent and unapologetic about the star's sexuality that they had to cut like uh, 30 or 40 minutes out of it, I think. The critic for the New York Times, his name was Mordant Hall, said that when they, before the movie, there was a th person who came on to the stage before the movie and he apologized for the fact that 40 minutes had been cut out of it and that a saccharine ending had been added, tacked on to the end of it. They, they literally apologized for the fact that this movie has been you know, bastardized and butchered, so you're not seeing the one that, that we made. And consequently, it wasn't it wasn't it doesn't doesn't have the impact that the unbutchered you know version had but i know craig you like pandora's box a lot too right i do but i also wonder how much the fact that it was a silent film counted against it when it seemed like by this point at least with as far as the academy awards were concerned hollywood was fully embracing sound even as awkwardly as they may have been doing it they were fully on board so I, I just wonder if that maybe was part of why it was overlooked plus the fact that it was a german production and i don't know that any of the major studios had a, a dog in that particular fight so it was easy to overlook it mm -hmm. that's not but that's... It, it um you know i think the early sound films sort of show a regression in in artistry just because of the the technology wasn't quite up to speed yet but a film we saw it earlier with sunrise the year before and another film like this one like like pandora's box that is pretty much the 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 pinnacle of the silent film art form and it just is so it head and shoulders above most of everything else that was being produced at the time on sound it's not even it's not even really a fair fight Right. I think that I first saw Pandora's Box. I know that I first saw it when I was in high school. My public library in my small town had this this uh, weekly film series where they would get these 16 millimeter silent movies and movies from the 1930s and screen them on a projector with a little on a folding screen that was like six by six, you know, in the in the in the art. Audiovisual room of the library, and so I saw a lot of old movies when I was a teenager, and it blew me away when I saw it because I didn't even realize contemporary movies that I was seeing at that time when I was a teenager didn't have as much freedom in the sexuality and the expression of sexuality and the in pure pleasure and indulgence that that movie had in 1929, and the acting style of the movies that I was seeing from the silent movies was, you know, it was broad, it was it was stagey, it was you know the style of silent movie acting. It's it's archaic, right? But Louise Brooks, who's the star of Pandora's Box, who played Lulu, had a totally naturalistic naturalistic style about her that reminds me of acting in the 1950s or 1960s. She was so far ahead of her time that people didn't even realize she was acting. I may be able to find it. You talk for a minute, Craig. I find this quote from this. She was actually resented by the Germans and the German audience as an American who was brought in to play this, I, I guess it was an iconic character at the time. The play was um, Frank Wedekind, which was written in the early 20th century, like 1904. So Germans had, you know, an attachment to this property and this character, and they were a little resentful of of this, this basically a flapper coming in from America to play this part. But it was pretty brilliant on the part of Pabst, who that, that was exactly the 
kind of person he was looking for this sort of exotic seeming you know dangerous modern jazz figure that Mm -hmm. that that really fit i think the original play that as you say was written in 1904 was a was a really strong satirical almost indictment of the bourgeois middle class and the middle class way of thinking and the moralistic it was tried it tried to to punch holes in the moralistic attitudes of the germans of the early 19th century and it really had a, a profound effect i think on german society it helped open up german society and people really felt fondly about it everyone knew lulu everyone grew up in the early part of the 19 of the 20th century knowing in in germany who lulu was and they did really take her to heart as a as a specific German iconic lady, you know, woman. And to have, as you say, when they brought an American actress who was really basically unknown to play her, a lot of Germans were offended by that. But even when it came to America, nobody in America really knew how to um, interpret what was what they were seeing on screen either. I, I'm, um, I'm seeing that the, the, you know, the New York Times critic, I did find the quote, he says, mixed with he been, yeah, he panned it. He said, Miss Brooks is attractive, and she moves her head and eyes at the proper moment. But whether she is endeavoring to express joy, woe, anger, or satisfaction, it's often difficult to decide. And the fact is, because she wasn't doing this broad, telegraphing all of her emotions, she was being natural. It's all of these things that he can't tell if she's expressing, she was expressing all of those things at the same time. There was so much nuance and subtlety in her acting that it flew right over his head. Hmm. Right. You know? She reminds me a lot of actually. She reminds me a lot of what Kristen Stewart did in um, *Clouds of Silmaria*. You know, is that kind of revelation when you see that on the screen? You see what's going on in her eyes and her facial expressions. That is a thousand things happening at one time. It's amazing. Wow. So yeah, was, I, it, was it notorious? Like, did people talk about it the way they talk about, say, I don't know, bad timing or? you know, um, body heat or movies that kind of, you know, had like a, a, a ripple effect sort of, um, that people would like secretly pass on to one another and say, Oh my God, have you seen this movie? I think in this country, it didn't make much of, make much of a stink at all. Partly because of what Ryan was saying, the version that they saw here was bastardized and all the good parts were taken out. Mm -hmm. But Again, I think it was the French in the 1950s, just when they were discovering everything else that was good about cinema that the Americans were ignoring, sort of brought a critical reappraisal to it. So, um, Well, they found the original negatives. They were able to reconstruct it. They had a 100-minute-long version that had been passed around you know, amongst film scholars for years, but nobody had seen the complete movie for years and years and years, but wow. they finally found enough footage to put together a 133-minute version, which is what exists now, and people could really see what it was all about, and all the hot parts restored to it. All of the really sexy, amazingly sensuous, erotic parts restored, and people could see what, how much it must have really freaked people out, really, in 1929. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. So I would say anybody that hasn't seen it, be sure to seek out the 133-minute the version. There's a there's a still the 100-minute version floating around on DVD, but don't get that one. Try to the find Criterion has the 133-minute version on that's, I think, pretty widely available. You should be able to see. In fact, Hulu has that version, so... Hulu has it, but you know... You could check it out. The Criterion version, in fact, is out of print, and there, oh, you can buy. You can get it on Amazon.com if you want to pay two hundred and thirty dollars for it. Literally, there's a there's a copy on Amazon right now listed for two hundred and thirty dollars. But you're right, Hulu, I believe, does have it online. 
Mm. The other thing, too, we were talking about controversy. I think Germany at the time um, that it came out, it was during the Weimar Republic, which was sort of the democratic interim between the imperial World War I Germany and the Hitler World War II Germany. And it was pretty similar to to the Jazz Age in the United States before the, before the Depression came along. I mean, Josephine Baker was a huge thing, and um, anybody who's seen Cabaret will have a sort of a at least a modern interpretation of a glimpse of sort of the the socially permissive environment that Berlin was at the time that that movie was made. So. I'm sorry, I'm backtracking a little bit. No, um, so, okay. so I don't think the, I don't think the movie was really necessarily shocking in Germany, and the version that we saw here was was watered down. So, mm-hmm. going back to Sasha's original question about whether how much of how many how much it made waves. Hmm. I don't know if you had time, Sasha. I, last night I sent you a, a review by Jay Hoberman, um, where he does, does this really lavish praise for Louise Brooks and the director of Pandora's Box, G.W. Pabst, and he quotes um, uh, a journal entry that Louise Brooks made in her diary when she first arrived in Berlin. She said at her hotel, at her hotel outside was lined with the higher-priced trollops. The economy girls walked the street outside. On the corner stood the girls in boots, advertising flagellation. Actors' agents pimped for the ladies in luxury apartments in the Bavarian Quarter. Racetrack touts at the Hoppen Garden arranged for orgies for the sportsmen. The nightclub El Dorado had an enticing line of homosexuals dressed as women. At the Mali, there was a choice of feminine mm. or collar and tie lesbians. So it was <laughs> wild. Like wow. Craig said, the Weimar Republic in Berlin at the time was absolutely cabaret every night. It was. God, it it's, was it's really funny when you think of life back then as filtered through the films that we all saw because they were so heavily censored and you know you just you just for me i grew up on movies movies were my life as a kid old movies especially from the 30s and 40s so i really think i got and many of us have a very distorted view of what people were really like back then you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it seems so quaint and stodgy and and victorian but really the reality is that things were a lot crazier than than what we would imagine yeah one thing that to relate Pandora's Box to this current year at the Oscars is that Pandora's Box was the very first film, I believe, ever to express openly a lesbian affair, a lesbian relationship. Pandora, I mean, Lulu in the movie has a very overt um, she attraction, or the, the, a lesbian woman uh, who's a countess has a very overt attraction to Lulu, and it's, there's no secret about it. In the in the edited version, they tried to hide that and cover it up and disguise it as make it make it as if they were school friends, friends from childhood. But it was obvious to me, even as a teenager, that there was something really, <laughs> really not 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 normal going on between these two women that I'd never seen in any movie before. Even a movie from the 80s or 90s, he never saw anything like that. Wow. They, it was the first lesbian, it was the first lesbian dance. They danced together and came very close to like, you know, I mean, you see the way this woman looks at Lulu and she's infatuated with her. There's no question about it. Wow, that's a fascinating. I guess I'll have to find it. I, You know, I would have looked at that, but right as we were talking about it, the shooting, the news of the shooting in, in the church. Mm-hmm. In, in oh, I know. Last night was such a uh, terrible thing that happened. It's so distracting. We were t- we, And we didn't really talk about what we were going to discuss today until last night. And I, we brought up Pandora's box at the last minute, so you didn't have time to... Yeah, I was pretty much consumed with, with the, the story. And, of course... 
as I was telling you guys earlier, I ended up losing 100 Twitter followers in a 24-hour period. Good riddance. Just from tweeting about guns. I mean, I don't know why they followed me in the first place. I get, you know, I just probably get a lot of weird random followers for no particular reason. Um... Well, there are conservatives who like movies, and so Some they follow of them, you for the yeah. movies. And I mean, if I get if you get retweeted by Michael Moore, which I've gotten retweeted by him twice, it's always a nightmare because he's got three hundred thousand followers or something like that, and a lot of them are conservative crazies. Who knows who they are? But why they would follow me if they're conservative, I don't know. But or or sometimes they come on because of women's stuff or Kristen Stewart stuff or whatever it is. Like I have no idea why they end up following me and then of course they think whoa gun stuff oh whoa gotta go mm-hmm. unfollow unfollow i think there may be some people on twitter who follow us for just for the reason of disagreeing with us just to see what we're going to say yeah. so that they can attack but then why unfollow you know yeah that does, yeah true that doesn't make sense it, it, it was probably the biggest single exodus of followers i've ever gotten just from tweeting out stuff about the shooting and you know stuff people were saying and yeah granted it was a lot of tweets that's the one way to keep twitter followers is not to tweet very much Mm, and they, don't be controversial about stuff that is a hot yeah. hot button issue. It's okay it's to be gonna... controversial. I think I get followers because of that, but they don't. People mm. don't like a lot of tweets from one person. They just don't like it. They see that and mm. they will unfollow you, no matter what your tweets are. Even if it's if it's Ann Thompson tweeting nothing but like trailer news and stuff. If she tweets like 10, 15, 20 tweets in one day, she'll lose followers for that. That's just sort of how Twitter works. Yeah. On the same topic, especially, I think maybe people it, it starts to get too hot top heavy in their timeline mm-hmm. or something. They feel like shut up already, you know. Yeah. Like I know four or five years ago, I I spent all day long I was real mad at Donald Trump for some reason or another. And so I did spend all day um tweeting a bunch of sarcastic stuff about Trump, and I lost every single one of my Republican followers. <laughs> every one of them I lost. I mean, it's literally two or 300 people I lost that day. God. And never, yeah, it was terrible. But at the same time, it's like I've told you, I consider that like weeding the garden. Right. You know, getting, I mean, who wants those people following us anyway? I don't know, but... I if, don't care how conservative you are. Anybody who doesn't think of Donald Trump as anything but a comic figure is a ridiculous human being. <laughs> they should be taken out back and shot with one of the guns they prize so much. <laughs> Seriously, Donald Trump is Or at a least pistol-whipped. Yes. He's, he, you know, he's crazy. I, I, I swear I think he's being trotted out just to make Jeb Bush look good by comparison. Like, that's how yep. deep I think the conspiracy is. Like, hey, Donald, why don't you run? Because then, you know, Jeb Bush stops looking like the crazy one. It gives the uh, journalist somebody to pick on. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole flying under the radar thing is important, obviously, for him. Flying under There's the radar probably, and looking moderate when really you're not. Yeah, exactly. There's probably a lot to that. I think that makes a lot of sense. But there's also they, what they don't consider is the backlash that they get from anybody who might be considering the GOP as an alternative. It, he, he's reflecting GOP attitudes that, that nobody else talks about. He says things that the other GOP candidates are afraid to talk about, like the fact that the only people who come from Mexico are rapists and thieves and drug dealers. And maybe there's a couple of good ones among them. You know, you, nobody's going to be able to say that and get any Latino voting for the GOP in, in next That's year. Hysterical. He's also one of those birther idiots who still refuses to believe that Obama's American. Right. Because, uh, yeah. And that, that appeals, that's red meat for a certain vocal, passionate part of the Republican base, the people who are actually going to vote in the primaries. Yeah. Points of interest, gone but not forgotten, Jeannie Eagles becomes the first posthumous acting nominee. I didn't know that, and I think she wins, right? Share the wealth, the first and only time no film wins more than one award. I don't know if that that's... Was a, that was April 1930. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. 
and then um, it also says, um, this is funny, uh, Street Angel, a winner for actress last year, nominated for cinematography and interior decoration this year. So mm. a film went up for the Oscars <clears throat> twice, and nobody seemed to notice. They just put it right in there. But, um, but that's all we got for this, our scant Oscar podcast. One other thing we might mention really quickly, in the November 1930 Oscars, um, Best Director and Best Picture went together for the very first time in Oscar history for All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, uh, won okay. Best Picture and Best Director. That was the first time that ever happened. Yeah, and it's going to be a while before they have five Best Picture nominees and five Best Director nominees. It's going to take some time to get to that point. We're still about 10 or 15 years away. But um, but okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode of our, our kind of crazy Oscar podcast, and, and we'll be back soon with the next year as we make our way clumsily through the 1930s. Thank you.